if neuro being your brain, your mind, linguistic is the language you're speaking, and the programming is what is it that your language, how are you programming yourself by the words and the language that you're using? That's how I define it and try and put those three words together. I also then think about this idea about modeling excellence. So if I see somebody that's really great at a particular skill or behaving in a particular way, and I think I'd really like to learn from them, there's a whole series of questions that help to uncover what is it they're doing, often unconsciously, that enables them to do that skill or behave in that particular way really well. Podcast Junkies, episode 260. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. Newcomers, this is the show where I interview interesting voices in podcasting and get them to talk about their shows and whatever else is happening in their world. Last week, we had Will Conway on, host of Baggage Claim, talking about all things travel, impact from COVID, and the stories people tell when they come close to life-changing experiences and several episodes of uh, Baggage Claim that I highly recommend, especially that intro uh, trailer episode. I had a really great conversation with uh, Will. This week, I speak to Sue Stocktail. She's the host of Access to Inspiration. She's an executive coach, a TEDx speaker, and an author as well. And she joins the show to discuss her unique background and podcast origin story. She's incredibly curious and adventurous by nature, highlighted by her expedition to ski the magnetic North Pole. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite and specifically the Scarlet 2i2 sound card, one of my favorite go-to sound cards, something I use for each and every podcast recording. The 3G line is a go-to for all new podcasters. Find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash Focusrite and the link will be in the show notes as well. In addition to her many outdoor explorations, she's the host of Access to Inspiration, a show that shares conversations with a variety of guests from around the world, and her mission is to inspire people to achieve more than they imagined possible. In this episode, we discuss what inspired Sue to launch the show, the importance of asking the right questions, and how she ensures her guests are in the proper mindset before they even sit down to do an interview. We dive a little bit into NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, the relationship between listening and movement, and Sue's all-time favorite interview. Really engaging and fascinating conversation with Sue. As always, full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 260. Make sure you stay to the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag. But for now, let's travel to the North Pole with Sue. So Sue Stockdale, host of Access to Inspiration, thank you for joining me on Podcast Junkies. It's great to be here, Harry. Thank you. So we're chatting a little bit pre-show. Would you care to share with uh, the listener where home is and, and where you grew up? Well, I am based about two hours west of London in England. And maybe people might recognize that this accent isn't sounding English. It's sounding more Scottish. I'm originally from Edinburgh in Scotland, but okay. I've lived more of my life in England than I have in Scotland. And uh, what's life been like there, especially as time stamping this, we're March 2021, but the past year has been one like no other. So I'm just curious what uh, the impact for you has been and anything that comes to mind. I might describe it as 12 months working in slippers. <laughs> a good one. All of the coaching work that I normally do face-to-face has moved virtual and a lot of my clients are, vir- are global anyway, so I'd never see them face-to-face. But it's been an interesting year wearing my slippers to do all my coaching work. You can get used to. Absolutely. How did you get into coaching? Well, I got into coaching because I met some other people who, unbeknown to me at the time, were really the the world leaders in performance coaching. And they had brought the concept of business coaching in from the world of sport, John Whitmore and his team at Performance Consultants. I met them at a trade show and got talking to them. And my background had also come from the world of sport. I used to compete in athletics and I've done a lot of polar expeditions. And with that background and then talking about the training and development leadership work that I had done. And I think I was doing coaching before I even realized that's what it was. They invited me to join their team as as an associate and the journey began. And and it's lovely to say that I did think I started at the top with the best at the time. And, uh, you know, there's nowhere much to go after that in terms of learning. It was a great opportunity. And that was 20 odd years ago. And I've been working with clients ever since. And I realize that it has been a while ago, but can you think about what that feeling was when you first started working with people of that caliber? Because I had a similar experience when I entered 
the business world, like coming out of corporate, you know, they don't teach you a lot about entrepreneurship and leadership and coaching. And so when you meet people who are the best in their field, you know, you sometimes feel like you're swimming in the deep end. And I'm wondering what that was like for you. I think it was going from a place of awe and amazement, if you like, wow, I've got a great privilege to work with these people. And then very quickly realizing to their credit and hopefully the brilliant way that they engaged with me was that they were real human beings and they had strengths and they had flaws just like anybody else. And they were very welcoming and really role modeled the craft of coaching. And that's just what I always remember is their genuine interest in me, their ability to just ask what I thought was amazing questions and to have that curiosity and openness and to know when to keep their mouth shut and when to engage in conversation. And that's an important thing I really learned early on with them. How important is it to have quality mentors, people you look up to, people whose lead you can follow? And I know they're important in the beginning, but also I think some people don't realize that ongoing, they still continue to add value. Yeah, I definitely agree. I'm always thinking about who can I learn from? Where can I learn from? And the world evolves and, and we as human beings evolve. And what I wanted to learn from a mentor 20 odd years ago is quite different from what I want to learn from a mentor today. It's the nuanced, it's the subtlety of the behavior or the skill that you want to practice and learn from. As I've been learning my craft of podcasting, I've been thinking about who can I learn from? Where can I learn? And that continues to evolve. So I think it's a never ending journey of learning. And there are always people out there, sometimes those that are unexpected, that are perhaps in your circle of friends or network already, and you've just never thought about them adding some mentoring support to you. So I think you can find mentors in very unexpected places. Has that colored your thoughts about uh, people you keep an eye out for, people that you could possibly mentor, or maybe relationships you have that are like that now? I'm a great one for being really curious, Harry. Mm. And, you know, for example, I remember listening to a podcast I was telling you before we started recording, one of the Between Two Mics recordings that Squadcast produced. One of their early guests was Amelia Lynn. And I was really intrigued to what she was talking about. So I got in touch with her. And then I invited her to be a guest on the podcast that I do. And then I was able to help and provide some insight to her business from an international perspective, because it was mostly US focused at the time. So I just feel that if there's somebody that you admire or you want to learn from, what's the worst that can happen if you reach out and say, could I learn from you? Could I have a conversation? And I think if you're always willing to give something as well as seek to gain something, and it's it's done on a proper reciprocal basis, then I've certainly found people are generally only too willing to help. Yeah, if you lead first with that idea of what the best that I can offer to this conversation or to this meetup, I think that's a great way to lead. Absolutely. I think I do certainly find it slightly frustrating on some of the uh, networking platforms where one can get connected to somebody and then the second thing is they're trying to sell you something. It does frustrate me slightly. Yeah, and I think anyone who's been on LinkedIn for any period of time can can very quickly relate to that. And what's interesting, I don't know if this is the same for you, Sue, but you can almost sniff those. I get better at sniffing them out now earlier, (laughs) and you can see like the language they use, what they lead with, how quickly they want to get you on a call. (laughs) A lot of warning signs there. Absolutely. But, you know, I guess it's like anything. I can't fault people for trying to engage and connect. It's just not necessarily always uh, in the way that works for me. Yeah. So I'd be remiss if I I didn't bring it back to something you alluded to earlier in terms of your love of outdoor sports. If I have this correctly, you are the first UK woman to ski the magnetic North Pole. That's correct. Yes. (laughs) So can you explain to the listener, you know, a little bit about that adventure, how you, you ended up doing that and what that was all about? Well, would you believe it was a result of seeing an advert in the newspaper? And the advert said wanted 10 novice Arctic explorers to ski 350 miles to the magnetic North Pole. And there was a picture of some people with their head around the side of a big industrial freezer. And my first immediate thought was, wow, I wonder what it's like to survive in a freezer or that sort of temperature for a month in duration. I don't actually know where the magnetic North Pole is, but it sounds like it's cold and it's white and it's in the Arctic somewhere. So I was intrigued. My curiosity led me to find out more. I sent off for more details and a lovely coloured glossy brochure appeared and it was all pictures of men. And it said in the front, are you man enough for the ultimate challenge? What year is this? 
1995. Yeah, even then, even then they should have known better. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think necessarily they'd even considered it. Anyway, that was a great motivator for me. So I wanted to definitely try to win a place on the team. I think about 500 people applied. And we went through a whole series of selection tests until eventually the team was selected. Eight men and myself and another woman who was Swedish. And we were 10 of us novices with some experienced explorers. We prepared and we trained and we had to raise a lot of money to pay for our place. But finally, we, we went on our expedition. It took us over 30 days to get there, dragging our own sledges, often in temperatures cold enough to freeze your flesh in seconds. Where and, did we uh, departing from? We departed from a place called Resolute in uh, the Nunavut Territories in northern Canada. Wow. And then we basically headed north and uh, hoped that everything we needed to survive was in our sledges and would keep us safe until we got there. What is it in you that when you see an advert like that, it's something that you immediately say, I think that's something I'm going to try to to do? Well, I think it comes back to when I was a young girl. I used to love reading Enid Blyton books. She's an, a British author. And she used to write a series called The Famous Five and another one called The Secret Seven. And they were children's adventure stories. And it was almost just like a bunch of friends. Normally they had a, a dog in tow and they would go off and have a great adventure. And I just think that captured my imagination about possibilities, about the joy of doing things with other people. I never do adventures on my own. I love just being around other people to bring the benefit of their skills and experience to make it much more fun. And just that idea about what is possible. And and it's that curiosity. And I'm not afraid to take the first step to find out. And I think that's perhaps sometimes where people are reluctant. They do a lot of thinking, but they don't always turn that thinking into action. I'll sometimes turn it into action. It will go completely wrong, but at least I'll have learned something. And that's how I suppose I'm not afraid to fail. Is that something that was taught to you that you you picked up just from the books? Or is it, is it something that, uh, you know, is your family surprised <laughs> at the actions you've taken? Well, yes, I think so. My sister is completely opposite to me. She's a real home bird. She lives a mile from where we were brought up. She married the boy next door. And she has a lovely, very close circle of friends that she's had for all the years of her life. So that's a completely different sort of perspective on the world than I do. And that's great because that is what's important to her. I guess I just always uh, had that sense of of possibility. And um, maybe there was never a sense necessarily about being discouraged. I think times if from my coaching clients, I can think of you know many leaders I've spoken to over the years where perhaps as a young person or early in their career, they, they tried to take a risk and it didn't pay off. And then they were rebuked for it. They got some sort of penalty or it was seen as being very negative as opposed to, oh, well, what's the worst that can happen? Or, you know, you made a mistake, let's learn from it and move on. And I do think that kind of growth mindset, as one might call it, that I think Carol Dweck talks about in one of her books, that ability to just say failure isn't about disaster, failure is about learning and picking yourself up and just going on and, and making sure you don't make the same mistake twice. Yeah, it's very common to what we hear talk about in entrepreneurial circles and something I've experienced directly, you know, building a company for the past six, seven years now, being comfortable with failure, comfortable with falling down. And it's really a function of how quickly you get up, dust yourself off and try the next thing. And I think in the beginning, early days, you tend to wallow in your failure and realize, oh, maybe I wasn't meant to do this, or maybe this wasn't meant for me. And so I'm wondering if some of that is what you're speaking to. Yes, I would agree. And I think that mentality is also relevant when people succeed. So when I remember getting to the North Pole and thinking, wow, I never imagined that this was possible for somebody like me who didn't come from an adventurous family or background. I I didn't even own a rucksack or a pair of hiking boots until I was in my mid-20s. But yeah, I'd done that. You know, I'd I'd made history, so to speak. And I thought, you know, there, there had to be a bigger reason for this. This just wasn't about having memories that are now photographs in an album. I wonder if my story, my experiences could inspire other people. And wouldn't that be a way of adding more meaning to that experience? And that's the same in terms of with failure is like, is there a bigger reason for the failure? What can I learn from this is equally to success. I've been successful. What can I learn from this? How can I go forward? How can I give back or pay it forward to others? And so. I'm wondering if, do you have those links to that event or photos? Because I'd love to include something in the show notes. Yes, I do, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Just to give people an inspiration for 
ideally, I, I don't know if they even have like the original posting of the event. That would be something interesting. <laughs> and then obviously, I just yeah, on the brochure somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then if you have photos, that would be great as well. Okay. Is that something you continue to take part in outdoor sports? Is it still something that's a passion for you? Well, yes, not every year, but the, I think it's uh, about four years ago now since I was back in Greenland on a dog sledding expedition with some of the local hunters there. So go out and actually experience the Inuit way of life. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's that curiosity, understanding what, what's it like for people in those challenging for us from other countries that are a bit warmer, challenging circumstances where they're living in that day in, day out. How do they cope and how do they survive? Hmm. So I think there's... For any of us, there's just a wealth of learning and insight we can gain from people who are different to us. And I'm always wanting to find out and learn from them. What's something that's memorable in terms of what you've experienced or who you've met in terms of other cultures that have changed like your, your way of thinking? Well, I think certainly from that Greenland expedition was the hunter's resourcefulness. So in terms of in their traditional, when they're going out and hunting an animal, they wouldn't be hunting it for pleasure. They'd be hunting it to live, to survive. And then when they would use every piece of that animal, so the bones, the skin, the fur, there would be nothing that would go to waste. And so I think that we forget about that <laughs> today. We, we're living very much, in the, certainly in the Western world, in a throwaway culture. Yeah. And I think nowadays, even a simple thing like, do I have to buy a new top or a new pair of training shoes? Could I just not wear the ones that I have or, you know, take them to the, not necessarily training shoes, but could I just get my shoes repaired? Could I sew up the hole in my sock? Could I just hang on to things for longer? And actually, maybe that's been one of the upsides of COVID where it's not so easy necessarily to go out shopping and have that retail experience. I've hardly spent any money on clothes this year compared to perhaps other years when I'm walking yeah. past a shop, it's always easier to go in and buy things. So I just think that when we value what we have, that's one of the things I really learned from those hunters is to see something as being having more than one use. So it, it's a little, perhaps a little bit being creative in terms of how they approach life. Yeah, very interesting. I feel like it's a bit of a, a rabbit hole that I could make the whole podcast episode just talking about that. So we'll be sure to link to that in the episode. But it it's not surprising then when you think about the title of your podcast and the types of stories that you're telling on there. So do you remember when you first heard of podcasts or you started listening to podcasts? Oh, it'd be quite a number of years ago now. There's a great podcast. My favorite podcast is the BBC series Desert Island Discs. And mm. it's, a oh, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a really simple format where the person, the guest is supposedly cast away on a desert island and they have seven discs or pieces of music that they can take with them and then they sort of tell their life story and the the music and why it has meaning and I I just love listening to that because I love listening to people's life stories and what drives them and why they do what they do so that was one of the earlier ones that I really enjoyed and then I do think that it's all I don't know of many people and you will be able to tell me if you're different to this Harry that just sit down purely and listen to a podcast and do nothing else at the same time very rare nowadays. <laughs> it's a both and, isn't it? We're doing yes. the vacuuming, we're making the dinner, yeah. we're walking the exactly. dog, we're doing something at the same time and we can consume that content and it can engage us in quite a different way. And that's what I really love about it is it's just available so easily nowadays. So It feels like a certain type of task where there's something about the parts of the brain that you're using because if I have to read text and listen to someone speaking, I can't do it. If I can read and listen to background music with no vocals, that works. If I listen to a podcast and I'm doing something that's walking or driving or walking, you know, or walking a dog or shopping, something else. It's interesting because there's certain parts of the brain that's being activated. And if they're both activated at the same time, you find it hard to consume content. And I don't know if you listen at one and a half or two X, because I, I do that as well. <laughs> and that makes it even more challenging and requires more focus too. Yeah, well, I I think because I spend my life for a living listening to people and having to engage in that medium, I quite like being able to not necessarily give my sole attention to the podcast when I'm having the other experience. But I think there's something really important about movement. Listening and movement is a really potent combination, I find. Can you speak more about that? Because that's interesting, the fact that you think about those two together. Well, just thinking about If I was to be sitting, as you say, writing or doing something that doesn't involve a lot of active movement and listening, I think that's quite hard to do. When I'm 
I'm waving my hands as I'm speaking to you here. When I'm walking, well, I used to walk the dogs or go out for a walk myself or be doing some physical activity at the same time. Just sometime, I think it sparks different parts of the brain, as you say. And I, I was once interviewed by somebody who was doing qualification in neurolinguistic programming. And part of that's about modeling excellence. Mm. So their job was to interview me about an area of strength that I thought I had and to see what that uncovered. And the area we looked at was about decision making. And about and when we uncovered through a series of questions was about it helped me to make decisions and take action. The thing that really was critical was about doing it with movement. So if I'm just mm. sitting here thinking about making a decision and not moving, it's hard to do it. If I get up and actually walk around or go out for a walk, I can make a decision much more quickly. So that's what made me realize that there's something about, for me, movement and a part of my brain that's either making a decision or listening. <laughs> Is that something that uh, people can take a test to see if they have a proclivity for that, like maybe a strength finder or something similar? I'm not sure, actually. Okay. There the probably is one. But I think it's the more we know ourselves and what makes us work effectively, just like a machine. If you get the machine tuned sure. or a car tuned perfectly, sure. it can really be quite satisfying to drive it. I just think about us as human beings to be in the same way. It's like the more we know about ourselves and what can help us to really perform at our best, then it's our choice whether we want to do that or not. But we have the awareness and the wherewithal to potentially do it. And you also mentioned uh, neurolinguistic programming, otherwise known as NLP. Can you, for the benefit of the listener, uh, define that or how you understand it? That's always a challenge, is to just define it in a simple way. So you've, <laughs> you've set me a task there. The way I think about it in my head is if neural being your brain, your mind, linguistic is the language you're speaking, and the programming is what is it that your language, how are you programming yourself by the words and the language that you're using? That's how I define it and try and put those three words together. I also then think about this idea about modeling excellence. So if I see somebody that's really great at a particular skill or behaving in a particular way, and I think I'd really like to learn from them, there's a whole series of questions that help to uncover what is it they're doing, often unconsciously, that enables them to do that skill or behave in that particular way really well. And I've used this skill with a group of leaders in an organization. I had the board of directors and the CEO, and I asked everybody to talk about the strengths that they admired in their colleagues. And there was one particular strength that everybody admired within the CEO. And it was about how he was able to bring other people in in a meeting. So he didn't have the limelight on himself. He was able to really include and engage everyone in the meeting. And that was a real strength everyone admired. So we then went through this series of asking questions according to the kind of NLP approach to uncover from him what was going on in his head, what were his beliefs when he was operating in that way, what was important to him, what did he do when things might go wrong and not work out as planned and so on. And it was amazing. The executives around the table were just fascinated to actually understand more about why their boss behaved in that way. And they were all busily writing notes. Now, then it's their choice to say, well, how could I take some of that and apply it to myself? But that comes back to me about this idea of curiosity. If we ask the right questions and we get somebody to open up about something that they're innately good at, that costs us nothing. It costs us the, the time and attention to do so and having the desire and interest to want to learn. So I think in a world where, you know, sometimes we say we haven't got time or money to do things, to slow down and invest that time and that interest in somebody else can yield huge benefits. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> that was very, very, very well defined. Thank you so much. I think sometimes when people hear the term, depending what circles they're in, their guard is up because it has been used you know, against people as well or, or to get something from someone that you otherwise may not have been able to do. And some people look at it as a sort of deceptive like mind game you're playing with them when, and use derogatorily like, you're using NLP techniques against me. And sometimes if you've studied it a little bit, you know, and you can recognize some of the phrases. I would imagine that's probably the people who have a basic understanding of it and not at the level that it sounds like you have having worked with it for many years. Like any other tool, it can be used for good or for bad. So I'm wondering what your experience has been with it. I definitely agree with you, Harry. I often don't necessarily say to anybody overtly, oh, let me try an NLP technique on you or with you. I will be using the principles behind it sometimes to guide what I'm doing with a positive intent. But I do think it's back to language, isn't it, and labeling. Sometimes we hear a word or we hear 
something being described in a particular way and we immediately make a judgment about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think NLP does have that sort of bad rap sometimes that yeah. people make a negative judgment towards it. So uh, so you indicated to be ask the right types of questions. And I'm fascinated by this because, you know, on this show, I usually lead with curiosity. And a lot of times I don't know a lot about the guests, but I'm really interested. And so I'm trying to actively listen as best as possible. And so anything that I can always do to improve the quality of my conversations is always important to me. And I've heard someone describe podcasts and when they talk about how long an episode should be. I've heard someone say that every minute of your podcast content should be adding value. So that's something, <laughs> it's really challenging if you think about it, you know, how long a podcast episode is, because if you get to the point where there's filler or there's nothing that the listener is not getting value from, as a host, you know, to do that in the in terms of a conversation that's happening real time is a bit challenging. But I think it for me, it just helps me, you know, be more present and be more alert. So I think you alluded to them, but you mentioned questions like what are your beliefs, what's important to them, and what to do when things go wrong. Are, are those some of the examples of the types of questions you think are important to get something out of someone to learn more about them? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm always thinking about in my head, what's driving that person to behave in that particular way? I wouldn't necessarily ask that as a question directly in that fashion. That's what the basis of my curiosity is based on. So when somebody's a guest, for example, when I'm podcasting, is talking about something, I'm also thinking about it from a sort of bigger system perspective. So very often we see our own experience in one dimension, let's call it, And some people aren't so cognizant about how does that appear from different perspectives or what might happen if they take their experience and apply it in a different world. So if you took an athlete, for example, and and take the athlete into the business world, how might their skills be relevant there? And helping to open up a person's perspective and think more broadly can be really helpful. I'll just give you one example, if I may. I was coaching somebody who was wanting to get a promotion in their job. And they said, well, in our organization, it's a bit of an old boy network. It will only, this was a female I was working with. It will only be that everybody knows everybody and I'm not in the network, so I won't get promoted. So I was sort of like, that's an interesting belief to have. And then I just kind of held that in the back of my mind. And then we were having a cup of coffee before we, we left for the, or got into the session in a bit more detail. And the individual said, well, we just, I've just hosted a street party where I live for all the neighbors. We've been here 20 years some people are new in our street and I was introducing them all to each other. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Would you call that networking? And the penny dropped in the person's head and they thought, wow, yeah, I'd categorized one thing in one part of my life and something, the same skills, but somewhere else. So I said, well, what if you could take those street party skills and apply those into your workplace? What would you do differently? And all of a sudden it gave them a new perspective. And I think that's when the magic happens, that if we as interviewers or even as people having conversations with our friends can interject sometimes and just give them a broader perspective, that new awareness can really unlock ideas, motivation, potential for people. What I find fascinating, and having been part of a coaching group myself for over five years, I see some of my colleagues and peers in the space, and the ones that are really good, the ones I've been fortunate enough to have a sidebar conversations with them or, or just a conversation, you know, when we were meeting in person, it's in, interesting, like some of the best coaches in, tend to in, unlock something that's in, already inherent in you. And you almost always have the answer yourself, but I think you just need to get out of your own way or see things from a different perspective. And I think that's, you know, some of the best coaches, they're just uncovering what's already latent in a person's abilities and bringing that to the surface, which I find fascinating. And I think that's what podcast hosts can also do, is to be able to help the person, the guest get out of their own way and uncover some new insight and thinking. And that's where those value added moments will appear in the podcast, I believe, certainly. And that's a beautiful segue back to the podcast. Thank you. (laughs) So you've been listening to shows. When is the moment that you're prompted or motivated to think that this is something that you now want to do for yourself? I can remember the moment I I was sitting having coffee with a colleague. I was in New Zealand and we were sort of thinking about the world. And I was frustrated that this was only 18 months ago or so, that more and more I thought people were operating in echo chambers and that the information that was being consumed by many people was based on people who were like them. And so our worlds were getting narrower. 
So you either had to be a celebrity or you were just operating in your own echo chamber. And from my work as a coach over the last 20 odd years, my coaching practice is very diverse. I work with people from all different types of industry, different countries, different sort of sectors, business sectors. And I see that with those people I'm engaging with, they're human beings at the end of the day. They all have similar challenges and they might describe it in a different way. They might have different obstacles in their particular sector to deal with. But by and large, as we would all know, human beings at heart. And I get a great richness of learning and insight from my work with them. And I kind of wanted to bring some of that to a bigger audience and think, well, if I'm getting benefit from this and hearing their amazing stories, how could that concept be applied to really help the world, help the listener in a podcast get the benefit of a real story from somebody else who maybe they would never come across in their normal day-to-day life? So how does a farmer learn from a firefighter? How does an office worker learn from a mountaineer? And we might want to do that, but we don't know how to find out or connect with that person. And that's where this sort of kernel of the podcast idea came from. So my colleague said to me, well, don't just talk about it. Why don't you just do it? And I thought, well, I do that for other things. Why don't I just try? What's the worst that can happen? I produce, yeah. see if I can produce one episode. If it has no listeners, well, it's not any loss. And if it has some listeners and they like it, that's an upside. Yeah. And that's just how it started. <laughs> What were some of the challenges early days, if you can remember? Getting to grips with audacity. <laughs> yeah. I kept on forgetting what the edit commands were and, and doing that wrong. I think it was also about what I would describe as rubbing your head and patting your stomach at the same time okay. in terms of engaging in a conversation, thinking about the technology, thinking about how it might sound from the listener perspective at the same time. There was too many things going on in my head at the start. Yeah. yeah. And I think then just kind of say, just calm yourself, Sue, and just have a conversation. (laughs) It was probably the best advice. So can you talk a little bit about the format? So you've been doing it for over, is it over a year now? Yeah, over a year now. And you're at season five. And what I thought was interesting is how you've decided to batch the episodes and the number of episodes you have in each season. So can you talk a little bit about the format you landed on? Yeah, because I wanted to make sure that we were valuing people who are unlike us, we carefully kind of curate how a season is put together. So there isn't been a consistent format of sort of eight episodes per season, but there's no more that I don't think than 10 necessarily in any one of the seasons. So it's trying to find, okay, have we got a balance of men and women? So not necessarily equal, but, you know, a sort of 60-40 split either way. So generally, have we got men and women? Have we got different countries represented Have we got different industries represented or stories? And to do that just across without having any sort of defined boundaries, I think would be more challenging. And also, I think it's a good way to the point we were talking about earlier, Harry, around continuous improvement and learning. What what I think we've found is we do eight, eight, for example, in a season. Mm -hmm. So we have that diversity. And then we get a break and say, okay, so what have we learned? What can we improve? What can we enhance? And giving ourselves just a bit of a breather before we then embark on the next season. And so taking that, what I would call from the world of sport, that foot on the ball moment in a soccer game or football match, the player wants to slow the game down, they stop, they put their foot on the ball and Mm. they just wait and see what the field of play is looking like ahead. And that's what my, our foot on the ball moment is for podcasting is to say, okay, we're going to do it in seasons and then we can have a little rest and reflect before we hopefully improve for the next season coming along. And that's something you knew you were going to be doing from day one? From about the second episode in, yes. Because, again, I do, without (laughs) hopefully not sounding too egotistical, I've met a lot of people over the number of years I've been in business. So I do have quite a range of contacts globally. And it was like, well, if we're only going to get, you know, we can't interview everybody. How are we going to be carefully choosing who has to be in a series? And it's not always existing contacts. Sometimes like Amelia Lynn, for example, I didn't know her before I heard her being interviewed. So there's a bit of opportunism and there's a bit about targeted people that I know have met in the past that I'd like to interview. I just find it, it's, it seems less onerous. There's something about, you know, when you go on a vacation well, for me, you might define it in a two-week or 10-day slot and say, okay, I'm going sure. on vacation, I'm going to enjoy it, and then I'll go back to my normal life and I'll say, I really enjoyed that because it had a boundary around it. And I think there's something to be said for that. It's just knowing the boundary gives you focus and it gives you intention to say, in these episodes, 
this is the intention we're trying to achieve here. And that's what, how coaching works. If I embark on a coaching conversation with a client, normally it's six sessions or eight sessions over a period of X number of months. And you know that there's a defined start point, a defined end point, and you can measure the success of it. It doesn't become this relationship of dependency that you just goes on and on and on and on and on. Then you might not be adding value. So that's my thinking, I guess, that I brought perhaps unconsciously from the world of coaching into the world of podcasting. And so the boundary for you is those eight episodes. And so you see them each as their own unit. And this is really interesting and definitely a great takeaway for the listener because a lot of podcast hosts don't do that. They don't take time to regroup. And it's sort of, it's the same concept people who work out or in fitness is the rest period, right? It's the recovery period. And I think this is, is, is really important to stress that, that as a podcast host as well, if you're just continuing to do content and you're not looking back and doing, you know, in, in the business world, it's called the postmortem <laughs> as well and seeing what worked, what didn't. And I think it's it's something that I'm going to be more conscious of as well, because, you know, for me, when I started, I wasn't thinking about the concept of seasons. So when I hit my first hundred episodes, I'm like, I guess that's season one. <laughs> so now the joke is like, my seasons are a hundred episodes. <laughs> so everyone does it a little bit differently. So it's fun to see what you're doing. But I think not just doing it for the sake of the break, because a lot of podcast hosts talk about needing the break, but I think also to do something within that period that will allow you to review what's happened. And ideally, if you have someone else to do that with, that's even better. And then decide, okay, now knowing what I know now, how can I make, you know, what can I do to improve the next day? So I, I really find that incredibly helpful and fascinating. So thank you for sharing that. Well, I, I also would say that the Access Inspiration podcast is a, a not-for-profit podcast. So we're not trying to, you know, generate revenue from it. We're trying to make a difference. And therefore, there's something important being about measuring impact. So for some of the uh, seasons, not every season, we've had a, a review and then a preview for the next one. And in that review, we've interviewed listeners. So have you, what value have you gained from it? How have you put an inspiration into practice? What have you really enjoyed? What guests have you enjoyed listening to? And so on. And it's just like, a bit like a coaching program that you'd get to the end of the coaching program with the client and you'd stop and say, well, what value have we added here? And that's the way I, that whilst downloads, yes, are one measure of success from the podcast, there are a lot of other measures of success. For example, over 50% of our guests have never been on a podcast before. And many of that 50% have been inspired by the positive experience that they've had as a guest to go on and want to do more podcasting or create a show mm. for themselves. Now, I think that's a big measure of success. That's paying yeah. it forward and using yeah. that inspiration for good. There are other uh, guests that are from, you know, from different countries and they've been so proud that their story has been valued by somebody else that they've spread it you know they spread it far and wide in their own community and I'm proud that they're so proud of having a podcast that tells their story those things for me are far more impactful for me personally than just the number of downloads that we have so that's why I think it's so important to do that evaluation and measurement of impact along the way so important and uh, something that you allude to in your episode trailer because I noticed that you do a trailer for each season which is again I guess a great best practice because a lot of people myself included now I have to go back and listen to my trailer but it may be sounding a bit dated now but I think seasons again to the point of resetting you know maybe there's this checklist of things that you do like review the episodes get feedback from your listeners record a new trailer like all these things you could be doing in the context of setting up for a new season which I think are really important so something you did mention there is that you did not want it to be an echo chamber and this idea of having people on for the first time I think is really interesting and, and giving voices to people who to your point have a, a great story to tell I say it on this show all the time I think everyone has a story if, if you just ask the right questions and you spend enough time and take an active interest in listening to them you'll get a story out of, out of everyone yes and I think to add to that Harry my experience has been there is as much the preparation up front before they ever even get in onto the microphone as it is about the experience when they're having the conversation. It's about how do you make it safe enough for them to want to participate, that they have a sense that they're going to be not put under the spotlight in an uncomfortable fashion, that you're not out to get them or trick them. A little bit like the negative NLP. <laughs> There's not, you know, you're not, your purpose isn't for ill. Sure. And also, and that's just about how the communication happens up front in terms of does it, do they leave with a feeling 
from having received communications from us before they even turn up for the recording. Oh, I, th- I think, you know, these seem to be nice people. This this is enjoyable. It's pleasurable. It's, it's going to be good. And if they turn up with that mindset, they're ultimately going to then do a better job when you have the conversation. What are some things that you've done to ensure that happens for your guests? Well, I hope that these things help to contribute to that is I do a chatty email. So yes, I understand the value of workflows and systematizing things. And we do have a Google form that invite people to fill in their information as as I have done for your podcast, Harry. As part of that is an individual chatty email from me. So it feels personal. And, and I know that if somebody's got a lot of episodes that's listening to this podcast, they're going to say, oh, I'd never do that in a million years. For me, that's part of the personal treatment. Sure, It's about uh, helping them to part pinpoint some of the previous episodes that might be particularly relevant for them if I could think about genres or country relevant episodes and so on to say here are some things you might want to listen to ahead of time I always send them a draft set of either a sort of areas of interest that I have to want to discover from them or some ideas of types of questions hmm. but I always say to them this is not the format we're going to follow this is to prompt your thinking because whilst I want those nuggets to appear in the conversation, I also want them to have a sense of, it's back to the, the boundary again. It's back to the sure. playing field. Sure. What's the field of play we're going to be operating in? And give them a sense of security enough that they know they can show up and then that's kind of where the boundaries will be for the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, because they feel at ease, they feel at home, they're more relaxed and naturally as as someone feels more relaxed, they they tend to be more of themselves and share more of themselves on the show as well. Uh, one thing I heard Tim Ferriss do recently and he I'm sure he does this on a regular basis, but he also gives the guest the opportunity to soli- uh, offer topics that might be of interest. So to say, "Hey, you should ask me about and it's, you know, three or four bullet points because and again, Tim's not obligated to ask those questions, but anyone that he finds interesting, he now has it as a prompt. So he's, so I imagine it makes for a much more engaging conversation. Yeah, it definitely does. That is one of the questions I do have on my, on my list is what, what should we, you know, what do you want us to know about or make sure that we cover in the conversation? So it's, if I think about it from the principles of good coaching practice and setting up a conversation with a coachee, when it's the first experience of being coached, I think as I'm, Reflecting on it with our conversation today, I think a lot of the principles that I've taken into podcasting come from the world of coaching and how I construct an environment that is going to increase the chances of people feeling safe enough to bring themselves to the conversation. And then they will be prepared to go outside their comfort zone and say things that were unexpected because they feel safe enough in the moment to do so. How many times have you heard, no one's ever asked me that? Or that's this is the first time I'm sharing this publicly. A lot. <laughs> As a podcast host, you're like, oh, you feel like I treat those moments with reverence because it feels like you know they're that's at them at their most vulnerable, and I never want to take that for granted. Absolutely. How have you grown as a host? Ooh, there's a good question. I think you should probably ask the listener that, not me. Uh, <laughs> they will be able to tell you. I think I'm hopefully getting crisper with my questions and more not bullet point like in terms of there's no emotion behind them or no introduction to the question but more targeted and impactful questions and maybe just being more relaxed Mm, yeah definitely I, i think that would be the two that would probably strike me as being important naturally when i ask a host what's one of their most memorable episodes it's like asking a parent to pick their favorite child i understand that so that being said are there a couple of stories or you know that come to mind from the the ones you've had recently well it was one of my earlier episodes it does come to mind harry with an astronaut now i was very privileged to speak to uh, john david barto so he's a retired astronaut and what was really impactful for for me, was I asked him about what did he want to be when he grew up. (laughs) Astronaut was up there in the top three, by the way. Nice. What he did say was when he was a young child, their family meals, he said, my parents encouraged the art of curiosity. He said, we had a whole set of encyclopedias in the house. And if we were at the dinner table and we'd be, you know, mom, why does this happen? Or dad, why does that happen? Their response was always the same. Well, let's go and find out. 
and we'll get the encyclopedia down from the shelf and we'll look it up and we'll discover the answer. And he said that way of just encouraging curiosity is what led him eventually, in a way, to become an astronaut and to want to explore more about space in his work. And after that conversation, which had me sort of that shiver down the back of your spine when you hear something like that. It was like, that's wow. I could imagine that picture in my head as he was saying this. I then, in a review show at the end of the season, we asked listeners what had been impactful. And one of the listeners said, I've got a six-year-old child. And I heard him talk about that, the guest, J.D. Bartow. And it made me think, do you know, sometimes I never engage my child indulging in their curiosity I just say well that's just how it is or you know Mm. when they say why she said I I don't have that patience I've now started to do exactly not with the encyclopedia but engage their child in a different way in and encouraging their curiosity and I thought wow from that one little part of the conversation there that could have changed somebody's life forever by their parent being encouraging in that curiosity you know that for me is just magic (laughs) <laughs> I got a shiver as well as you were telling the story. So I'll definitely make sure we list uh, not only the podcast, but that specific episode as well. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I think it's fascinating that the threads, maybe what some people would call the butterfly effect of the parent having that conversation with the student, with, with their their son, who then takes that inspiration for wanting to learn, becomes an astronaut, becomes so well-known that you discover who him and through your adventures, you feel a kinship with him enough to have him on the podcast so that your listeners can listen to it. And that thread of communication, you know, that, that travels through through decades of time really fascinates me. I, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. A couple of questions as we wrap up. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? Oh, there's a good question. <laughs> that's my moment. I'm like, oh, the first thing that came into my head was Clubhouse. The... Uh... <laughs> I'd love to hear about it because the beauty of that question is it could be like, I now drink tea instead of coffee or like I take more walks. So it's open. And so since that was your first impulse, I'd love to hear more about that. Well, the only thing that came to mind is people keep on saying to me, oh, you've heard about Clubhouse. Have you been on Clubhouse? And I've registered and I've got a profile or whatever it is that you have. And the first time I went to go on and participate or be listening to what was going on, I went on to one thing activity and the person said oh brilliant sue's online what do you think and it just frightened me off so much (laughs) oh no i don't want to be put on the spot i've never been on again since so with that initial enthusiasm i was then not encouraged to go back on again because i'm I'm not actually sure what i'm doing on it so that's my perhaps my next challenge is to learn more about clubhouse and how it works well it's funny because something i've been testing out i love new tools and my partner will tell you you know to to an extreme because she's like nope no more tools i don't want to hear anything about anything else but what's fascinating about clubhouse is the immediacy of being able to start a room on a specific topic no microphone needed no camera needed you don't even have to worry about recording so you can just try ideas and if it's two people in the room no one's the wiser i know some advanced podcasters have now figured out how to record and, and they do shows based off of it But what I've been thinking is just different ways to engage with listeners of the show, because one of the challenges as podcasters we have is we don't know specifically like who's listening in this moment. At the time of this publication, I'm speaking to you specifically, listener, and if you are listening to this, there's tools that we're trying out, right? So there's a very simple tool called Bunches, bunches bunches.chat, and it's just a chat taken out of Facebook because there's just too much noise in Facebook. I don't like sending people to Facebook groups now because they get lost, so... That's one aspect. And then I do have a clubhouse room that I've created specifically what I'm calling the Podcast Junkies Post Chat. So if you're up for it, we can schedule this offline. And I usually try to see if I can bring in a guest to come in the week that their episode is published. So sort of like, hey, the episode's out, been out now, so how are things going? <laughs> so I did that with Allison and with Darren. We mentioned You mentioned you had listened to yeah. their episode and they had a great time. So it's just using it. And I think if you create a name for the room that is very unique, I mean, if you created one about, you know, what I learned from skiing to the magnetic North Pole, like it would just pull in listeners, right? And it'll, this, the beauty of it is is just the serendipity of it, just finding new people that just happen to be on at that time. So if you're up for it, I'd love to do a little hand-holding session with you and we can figure out a fun way to, to get you back on there. <laughs> That's not so jarring. <laughs> That sounds brilliant. That sounds like a great way for me to take my baby steps into knowing about how Clubhouse works. What's the most misunderstood thing about you? 
I think people might imagine that having gone to the North Pole that I like the cold and that <laughs> my husband would tell you that I'm normally complaining about our house being too cold and I like the heating up. So yeah, <laughs> I think it's about, you know, comfort and having the in the right environment is important for me. Very good. Well, Sue, the, the time flew by as I imagined it would. And I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your wonderful story. I'm going to recommend the podcast to, to everyone because I think we all need a little bit more inspiration in our lives. And just from, you know, the example of the, the one guest you mentioned, there's dozens more stories like that on the podcast. So for the benefit of the listener, what's the best place for people to learn more about you and the show? Well, they can find it access to inspiration.org. And it's on all major podcasting platforms. Just look in, look up access to inspiration and you'll find it there. And if you look up Sue Stockdale, type that into your search engine, you'll find out lots more about me too. It's nice when your name ranks pretty high in Google. You can just tell people to search and they'll pretty quickly find your site. So that's always a good thing. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Have a, I hope you have a wonderful day. Well, I think you've role modeled the ability to ask great questions on this podcast, Harry. So it's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks to Sue for coming on the show. Always much appreciated when our guests make time to share their story. Full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 260. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, Focusrite, and their awesome line of gear, specifically the Scarlet 2i2 Pro, podcastjunkies.com forward slash Focusrite. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash chat15. Tune in next week for my conversation with Alex Sanfilippo. He's the host of Access to Inspiration and the co-founder of Podmatch. And if you've made it this far, you're no doubt looking, searching the North Pole for the retention hashtag. Let's go with North Pole Sue and tag us at podcast underscore junkies and Sue at Sue Stockdale. S-U-E-S-T-O-C-K-D-A-L-E. Thanks for all you do to support the show. Talk to you next week.